0: Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. You are listening to episode 313 of Sexology podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Today, we're going to talk about contraception, abortion, and miscarriages. I know that this is a sensitive topic for many people. If you are pro-life or pro-choice, I honor your decision, and I think it's important for everyone to have accurate information, as I will talk about it in my conversation with Dr. Catherine. When I was a teenager, I had a classmate. Who committed suicide because she was pregnant and she didn't know what to do when she was so hopeless that because of what she experienced, I decided to be an advocate for giving people accurate sexual health information. But again, if you this is a topic that you're not comfortable with, maybe you can skip this episode. But for the rest of you, if you're a heterosexual, cisgendered couple within the age of I don't know, fifteen to 50, when you have sex, there's a chance that you you will become pregnant. No birth control method are 100% effective. And if you just silently wonder about abstinence, know that the abstinence effectiveness is one of the worst. We don't teach our kids about what are different ways that they can protect themselves. And also, what can they do for family planning? Even as adults, most adult women, they know about medication, maybe like contraceptive pills and condom, but there's a galaxy of different options out there. And as you can see, as, as, I'm, as I'm talking with Catherine, there are things that my information isn't about that, it's not accurate. So I definitely encourage you to listen to this conversation. I can almost guarantee that you will get good information out that We're going to talk about reliable forms of contraceptive for women. We're going to talk about the hormonal contraceptive versus non-hormonal contraceptive pills. We're going to talk about Plan B pills. We're going to talk about pregnancy termination, the different Laws and different states that has changed, and what would that mean for someone wanting to get access to terminating their pregnancy? Before I go to the episode today, I wanted to take a moment and thank our sponsor, OMGs. OMGs is a website that was developed based on the large research study that was done at Kinsey Institute, and they asked ten of thousands of women what made their pleasure better solo and with the partner. And then they found the patterns of those discoveries, the physical techniques, psychological techniques, and all the tips and information that you would need in order to up-level your sex life. And they created this really good videos, animations, and how-tos as part of their website. Anyone can go to omgs.com forward slash sexology for a special discount, and they have a free access for psychologists, therapists, and physicians. Reach out to them to get the free access. Our guest today is Dr. Kathleen Laroche. Dr. Catherine is an assistant professor of public health at Purdue University. She's a public health social scientist and applied anthropologist who carried out community-engaged action and intervention-oriented research about sexual and reproductive health with a focus on abortion and pregnancy. She has published her work extensively in journals like contraception and women's health issues, and she has led and contributed to projects in Canada. She got a number of different awards. You can read her full bio in our show notes. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Catherine LaRoche. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. It's my honor to welcome Dr. Catherine LaRoche on our show. Catherine, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for
1: having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: I am looking forward to this conversation. One of the one of the reasons I started to be in the field is kind of related to what we're going to talk about. I talk about it. I had an episode of abortion six years ago and I talked about it. I remember I was in a high school. I was I think I was freshman or junior back in Iran. I'm Iranian American And I Mm -hmm. had this girl in my class that she she was smart, funny, very social. And one day we came to the school and she was no longer at school and what shortly realized i i realized was that she jumped off the bridge and ended her life because she was six months pregnant and back then it was such a tragedy for her Mm -hmm. family she was in a committed relationship we went to the funeral for her boyfriend and i can imagine the impact that loss had on her partner her entire community Mm -hmm. at that point Mm -hmm. i thought that okay we women need to know about the options, Mm -hmm. because we know that abstinent based education is just not enough. So Mm -hmm. I am so grateful that people are like you in the field doing the hard work doing the research. And sorry, I started with a trauma vomit.
1: (laughs) No, that's true. Yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's not a it's not a one off instance, right? So that's, I'm so sorry. No, thank you for, for saying that. But her loss was so impactful
0: mm-hmm. that right now, more than 20 years later, that's why I'm passionate about doing sex, educa- mm-hmm. sex education, mm-hmm. uh, to women about kind of pleasure and also family mm-hmm. planning. So on that note, let's let's talk about some of the challenges that some women are experiencing when it comes to contraceptives. What are some of the misconceptions that you hear that people are having around? This.
1: Mm-hmm. So I think the first thing, and I don't know if this is necessarily a misconception, but it's just something that I always like to emphasize when we're talking about contraception is that there is no one size fits all method for everybody. And people have different needs and preferences and things that are available and accessible to them. And things also work differently in different people's bodies, and that's okay. And that's great. So we have an array of methods that people can choose from. And I always say that the best method of contraception is one that you like and you use consistently. And that's the best method for you. So I think that sometimes, especially clinicians and in public health discourses, we can get really hung up on sort of the effectiveness of methods and the tiered, how what some methods are more effective than others. And that's definitely something that we want to consider and that is important to people. But just because a method is the most effective method doesn't mean it's going to be right for someone or for everyone. So that's my first thing that I would say is that there's no one-size-fits-all approach. Another thing that I've sort of heard come up sometimes is this idea that the longer you use different kinds of contraception, especially hormonal contraception, that it might actually become less effective over time or this idea that your body sort of adjusts to the hormones. And so then the medications become less effective. And that's not true. That's incorrect. So we actually see that people have the highest rate of unintended pregnancy in the first year after they start a new method. And a lot of the time that's maybe because they're less familiar with the method or they're kind of figuring out how they want to use it or when they want to take it, getting into a routine. The other thing is that we are thinking about this if someone says, I used the pill for 10 years and then I got pregnant. It just means that you had more chances that maybe you were using that method slightly incorrectly or you forgot to take a pill or things like that. So it's not necessarily that the method is becoming less effective over time. As well, we also know that using hormonal contraception does not decrease your fertility at all so there's no long-term effects associated with your fertility with taking contraception hormonal contraception and again i think that we can if we think about this there's a lot of ways that we can understand why people might have their own experience that could make them think this or could associate this but First of all, a lot of aging is associated with more fertility challenges. So maybe we stop taking contraception when we're in our late twenties or our thirties or our late thirties and we want to become pregnant. You have become less fertile over time And as well, it's very possible that there were pre-existing issues with fertility or things like that, that were undetected or we didn't think about because we spent so long in our life trying to avoid becoming pregnant. So it's not actually the method or anything that you've used that has changed your fertility over time. It's just sort of aging and life.
0: I love that, and I think like having having this myth kind of floating around people kind of can be discouraging for some people to kind of use them or use these different methods in a reliable, mm-hmm. recommended ways. I remember when I was in college, it was again a long time ago. The understanding was it's it's preferred if the person that like I'm, I'm a heterosexual, the guy is wearing a condom, and that was that was the understanding. <laughs> I cannot believe yeah. the level of the rest connected yeah. to that as far mm-hmm. as kind of SDIs, pregnancy, all, mm-hmm. all sorts of things related to it. But I think for our younger listeners, what are some of the more reliable way of kind of preventing pregnancy? Because mm-hmm. I feel like some of the strategies are excellent, but it requires more of commitment to the method.
1: Yeah. So the most reliable method for people will always be, as I said, the one that they're using consistently and correctly. So that is my big take home message. That being said, we do have some methods that are consistently more effective than other kinds. And so one sort of family of methods that we have is called long-acting reversible contraception or LARC, and that includes the intrauterine device or the IUD and the implant. Lots of fun acronyms there, (laughs) LARC, IUD. And so these are methods that are inserted and removed by a healthcare provider. So the IUD is inserted into your uterus and the implant goes in your arm, and these are effective for between three and 10 years, depending on what kind of method that you use. And you did mention younger listeners. So I also want to emphasize that IUDs and implants are safe for people of all ages. This is actually kind of another myth that sometimes you hear that you can only have an IUD if you've already been pregnant or you've already, you already have a child or something like that. And that is not true at all. People of all ages, any age can use these methods. And we actually have very good evidence that when younger people teens have access to these methods and they choose to use them that it reduces overall pregnancy rate so these methods are considered to be some of the most effective methods because as i said they're put in place and then removed by a clinician or a healthcare provider so this means that there's less room for user error right so it's not something that we have to do every day it's not something that Maybe I forgot to refill my prescription for a pill at the last minute. And then by the time I go to CVS to pick it up, I didn't have my pills for three days or something like that. It's something that we use and put in, it puts in place and it stays there for a long time. So that's really why those methods are so effective. Then we kind of have this other category of methods that contain hormones. So this might be like the pill, the patch, or the ring. And these methods are also very effective, but they also do have this degree of user error because they depend on the person that is using them. And then I also just want to briefly address this kind of idea of non-hormonal methods. And I think that there's There's a little bit of a line and we have to have some nuance when we're talking about this. And I'm by no means saying that non-hormonal methods are bad. People have different preferences and different priorities in these kinds of things. So although things like fertility awareness methods or just using condoms are overall less effective than other hormonal methods, there's a variety of reasons why that can still be the best choice for someone, right? As you said, it just takes more work from them to make sure that they're keeping up with it. I also think that maybe if someone's ambivalent about pregnancy or they're at a point in time in their life where they're okay with getting pregnant, but they're not actively trying, then using something like fertility-based awareness is can be a great option for them. The rate of failure and the chance of becoming pregnant is higher with these methods, especially sort of the longer you use them because you have a greater chance of of failure, but it doesn't mean that they're the wrong choice or they don't have a place in family planning for other people. So it's not a method that I would personally recommend if someone absolutely did not want to be pregnant and was not open to pregnancy at all, but you can also combine different kinds of methods. So for example, using fertility awareness and condoms as a barrier method, which then will increase the effectiveness and you're overall less likely to become pregnant so there's a lot of kind of different factors to consider in what is sort of the best choice for you
0: well, this is such an incredible overview of what's out there. I, I appreciate that you're going over this, kind of talking about it. And when I think about this additive model of like doing and, like couple, pairing things, couples together, I believe that if there are for some reasons challenging one of them, you still have another added kind of like security there. For example, mm-hmm. that if you're using a lo- wrong kind of you. Your condom and it breaks, then at least, you know, it's not the fact that, you know, it's not the fertility window, then maybe Mm -hmm. that that's how that is helpful. Of course, that's not going to prevent from STIs, but it still gives you this opportunity to not be as worried about kind of getting pregnant or reduce the chances of it. And I, and I believe that there we don't get enough information about proper use of some of these methods. I think it was an adult woman. I think it's so confusing to use internal condom. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It can be very confusing. So I can only imagine a teenager like handed the internal condom. What, what would she think?
1: Yes. And on that note, well, I think internal condoms are very hard to find, or they can be very hard to find, at least anecdotally for me and all the people that I've known, it can be hard to find. But I will just say, because we were talking about doubling up on methods and that you do not want to double up on an internal condom and an external condom or male and female condoms, <laughs> sometimes people call them, because that is can actually lead to the two different kinds of condoms can rub together and break. So if you're using a barrier method like that, choose one rather than both <laughs> two is not always better than one so. you are
0: right as i said that i was thinking about that that's actually one of the situation that make it make it less safe <laughs> and i and i love the idea of thinking about having this assurance that i i went to my physician and i got this way of kind of like, whether it's iud or an implant that helps me to have kind of be more spontaneous in the Mm -hmm. moment with my partner and it keeps me more in the relaxed and worry-free zone. The other very popular method that I remember I was using and when I think about it, it gives me chill is the pull-out method. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> if that's so, an, a reality is a method, right? I yeah. know that there are like a category of men that they have control over their ejaculation. But I last time I, I saw, uh, when I was looking at this research, it seems like it's like as 25%, if you're using it for entire year, 25% chance of getting pregnant. So the numbers are high. I'm not sure if that's quite as high because the numbers are different, but what's your thoughts on that?
1: Yes, so withdrawal or the pullout method i will say like when i'm talking with students especially i will say that it's better than nothing right so that if you are in a situation where you're having sex and you really don't want to become pregnant withdrawal is better than nothing it doesn't protect against stis but as i said better than nothing it is withdrawal depends a lot on you having trust in your partner. And ultimately, if you are a person who can become pregnant, you're then depending and putting a lot of trust on someone else about whether they are going to respect your boundaries and perhaps even like in a non-malicious but best intentioned way, people make mistakes and you're in the heat of the moment and you can yeah, make mistakes or kind of misgauge your signals and things like that. So i wouldn't recommend withdrawal as a primary method for anyone but again at the same point in time i don't want to diminish it at all like a hundred percent because i think that it is better than nothing and the great things about withdrawal is that it's free and it's always available right so those are a lot of people can face barriers getting different kinds of contraception and there's no barriers to withdrawal so It's not something that I, it's not something that I would use if you don't want to become pregnant and you don't want to get an STI and you are absolutely not willing to budge on that. You have no intention of becoming pregnant, but if it's all that you have, then it's, better than nothing
0: well i love this attitude of better than nothing <laughs> very encouraging right, right? because you right. want to have some agency but again as someone that used it when i was young i can imagine there are so many things that can impact it perhaps mm-hmm. like if the person has premature ejaculation or maybe they use a substance that kind of like make it more difficult for them to control ejaculation and then yeah that not coming from the place of kind of wanting to be as you mentioned vindictive or Mm -hmm. not respecting your boundaries then they might ejaculate and if you if you're in the window or like close to the window you might get pregnant so if you're in that place of kind of perhaps we were in the window there there has been some ejaculation or there's some possibility of getting pregnant what are some of the suggestions you have for people to take care of themselves
1: in those situations So there's different kinds of emergency contraception. Sometimes people talk about this as plan B. It's kind of a colloquial name. But really, emergency contraception is a family of different medications or devices that we can use to hopefully prevent pregnancy after unprotected or underprotected sex. So actually, the most effective kind of emergency contraception is the copper iud so this is a non-hormonal iud can be hard to find a provider to insert it in sort of a short turnaround window but this is the most effective kind of emergency contraception i believe it's up to 10 days sorry it's five days it's five days so a copper iud can be inserted up to five days after you have un or underprotected sex it's highly effective. And then you also get ongoing protection against pregnancy. Then there is, so Plan B, which is the brand name, levonorgestrel emergency contraception, that you can take for, again, it's actually up to five days after un or under protected sex, but it is more effective the sooner that you take it. So it's much better to take it as soon as you can within the first day than on the fifth day, because the longer time goes on in between, the more chance you have that you've ovulated. And once you've ovulated, the medication is not going to be effective at preventing pregnancy. Another thing about the levongestrel you see is that there's evidence that it's less effective in people over a certain weight that it doesn't necessarily mean that like taking two of the pills or something like that is going to make it more effective. So I think that the baseline is somewhere around 155 pounds, which is actually very many people many many people weigh more than 155 pounds so there's another kind of emergency contraception the brand name is ella and it's called it's ulipristal acetate that is more effective in people of all weights and it also tends to be slightly more effective for a longer period of time and finally if you have oral contraceptive pills so just kind of like the regular pills that you take every day, and maybe you don't have access to plan B or emergency contraception, you don't have money to pay for the pill. You can use, you can search on the internet. It's called the Yutzby method, and you can sort of double up, you can take more of your pills, which will give you a concentrated dose. And then you can use that as emergency contraception as well. So it's kind of like DIY emergency contraception. And that is also safe and effective if that is a situation that you need.
0: Well, you know what's interesting? Again, I'm going back to my memories from decades ago. I remember that the first time I went to get a plan B, the pharmacist asked me about if I had unprotected sex. And I felt that question is just so... Unusual. Why would I want to plan B if I'm not if I'm paying this much of money for medication? Why they're asking that? I'm just curious about that.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's I'm not sure. I would assume that it's maybe so that they can counsel you on it, or maybe ideally in an ideal world, if you had unprotected sex, they could ask you if You wanted a referral or information about sti testing i mean feasibly people could be sort of buying these medications in advance and to anyone who's listening to this podcast if you think that you could ever be at risk for pregnancy these medications have a relatively long shelf life and if you see it at the pharmacy it's fine you don't have to have had unprotected sex so then maybe it's something that you have it in your pharmacy sorry in your medicine cabinet and it's there if you need it, right? Just like aspirin or Advil or other kinds of things that if we have a headache, it's there if we need it. So that would be my guess as to why they're asking that, but I'm not actually 100% sure.
0: I wonder if there's some policy around it, because I remember that the guy wasn't like a kind, considered person. It's like, are you over 18? Did you have unprotected sex? And I said, yes. And then he handed me the medication. It wasn't like, oh, let me give you some referrals or this is a brochure. I wonder if there is some law behind it. And this is like, I don't want to age myself, but (laughs) at least this information is 20 something years old. Yeah and I love the idea of keeping this medication in your in your home right? Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. for any reason, even if condom breaks, for any reason, you might need it one day. And I think it's good to have them. I know that when they were talking about changing the policies, actually, that was one of their recommendations for women to have it so they have access to it. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of curious about, I don't know how much you know about the policies. I know that's also part within kind of like areas that you, you write about and talk about, Can you tell us is, for example, as of now, in the states that it's not legal, how would that look like? And in the states that are illegal, how would legal and illegal, how would that look like the options for women?
1: For are we talking about abortion now? Abortion. Yeah. Yeah, Okay.
0: I I can hear the hatred, but (laughs) imaginary heat coming. (laughs) So I'm not clear.
1: Yeah, no. So with the Supreme Court decision in the summer, basically what it did was it meant that there is no longer a federal level decision for the whole country about how abortion has to be provided or situations in which it can be restricted or can't be restricted. So it went back to individual states. States now have the right to restrict or eliminate access to abortion. And realistically, that's that's very scary. And it's scary for a lot of people who are living in states that have completely eliminated access to this kind of care. And we also know that Black and brown women are really disproportionately impacted by these bans and that they face really compounding barriers to care. But what I do want to say, and again, this is another big takeaway of people want to take away from this is that there are people and there are organizations who want to help and who are able to help you get an abortion. There are abortion funding organizations, there are places that there it is really scary and it can feel really insurmountable and I am in no way taking away from the barriers and the challenges that people are facing, but I think that sometimes maybe we talk so much about barriers and challenges that it might make people feel like it's not an option for them to have an abortion, even if that's something that they want. And so I just want to say that there are abortion funds out there that can help you. You can go to plancpills.com to get information about medication abortion. There's, There's options and there's people and places that want to help you get safe, timely affordable and effective care
0: so if it's legal i can imagine there are kind of number of different options that you can go mm-hmm. to planned parenthood you can mm-hmm. go to your physician there are a number of different ways that you can navigate it mm-hmm. but in the states that are illegal especially if you're younger i can imagine it's there are more barriers but what i'm hearing that you're saying that it's not impossible there are no. organizations people in your corner
1: Mm hmm. mm -hmm. And so a really good website to try to figure out if there's providers in your state is I need an A. Dot com So that lists clinics and providers in different states. Also, Plan C Pills is another really great resource that people can look up and you can figure out if medication abortion and having that at home is a good option or a choice for you that is appealing. There's abortion funds, there's the National Network of Abortion Funds, and they help people pay for travel, if you have to travel to another state, if you need help paying for the actual procedure. There's also the National Abortion Federation has national funds dedicated to people. As for young people and people under 18 specifically, there are a lot of Depending on the state that you live in, there's a lot of, there can be a lot of additional barriers and challenges. So some organizations that are working specifically with youth, if you're in Texas, there is Text Abbey. I'm involved with a text line for young people in Missouri called Right By You. And so that's a text line that we help young people And I mean, people of all ages across the state get medically and legally accurate information about contraception, pregnancy, parenting and abortion, where to go, how to get support and sort of linking people as well with other kinds of services or organizations that linking them with abortion funds, telling them where they can go and helping to get things figured out. And I
0: think it's incredible that there are people out there, provider, clinicians that are volunteering for this situation for this kind of kind of care, or even if it's a paid situation, they are willing to help. How mm-hmm. would that look like in a state that it's illegal? Would they get in trouble
1: kind of providing care to these individuals? So, this is it's a bit so I will say that I am not a lawyer, but I work with a lot of very smart lawyers and legal scholars. So, I am going to do my best to talk about this, but also just a caveat that I am not a lawyer. So, this depends, and there's different every state is kind of different. So, providers might be in trouble. So for example, in Texas, we heard very much about these laws where people that are seeking abortions are at risk of being sued or can sort of face penalties. And then in the state that I'm in right now in Indiana, the law limiting and restricting access to abortion is currently enjoined. But the way that that law was written actually seeks to criminalize people who are providing abortion care, not abortion seekers. So on one hand, that's positive. On the other hand, it just means that they're still very hard to access care and that the, the health service delivery landscape across the state really shifts so dramatically. So people, there are states that have tried or have in place different kinds of laws that make it hard to travel to another state to access care, but that's mostly for young people. So Missouri is another example of a state that has special laws in place that if you try to help someone in Missouri who's under the age of 18, go to another state to get an abortion where they don't need parental consent or notification that you can be charged criminally so it is a very complicated legal landscape the extent that individual people are being charged is unknown and so there's a lot of fear with these kinds of things but these different organizations and places that when you call or you text or you're trying to, they will be able to give you more information than I can. And they have worked with lawyers and legal teams and be able to sort of explain to you what's happening and and the risks and everything like that so that you can understand better, especially because it is so state specific. And again, I'm not a lawyer, so none of what I just said is legal advice.
0: (laughs) Well, I appreciate that, right? I think it's for many people they will not have access to legal advice immediately. So I think having some outline and, and doing their own research is is important. Mm-hmm. As as a psychologist, I counseled people that they terminated their pregnancy and they were very happy about it i i counseled people that they regretted it i had clients mm-hmm. that they at the time they thought it was a good decision now they're coming to therapy many years later kind of have emotions about that what are some of the recommendations you have for people kind of things to think about if they are interested in terminating a pregnancy that was unplanned
1: Hmm. So I think that a lot of the narratives and the narratives around abortion, when we talk about people's feelings or sort of the risks about emotional risks of abortion, tends to really be very polarized and focus on this idea of like people have this immense amount of regret surrounding their abortion, or people feel very relieved, right? And certainly, it's possible, and many people do feel both of those things. But at the same point in time, this is not something that's unique to abortion. With any sort of decision that we make in life, we can feel sad that we were in a situation that we had to make that decision, but also be grateful for the option that we had, right? Two things can be true at the same time. And someone can be grateful that they weren't forced to continue with a pregnancy that they didn't want right now. And also sad because maybe they're in a relationship with someone that they really want to parent with someday, or maybe the timing was really bad, or maybe they don't have the money right now to be able to parent and support that child in the way that they want to. So people can and do feel all sorts of ways. And so I think that as healthcare providers or anyone that's interacting with with people who are pregnant, one of the best things that we can do is just not make assumptions so don't assume that just because someone's pregnant they want to continue to be pregnant and don't assume that just because someone has an abortion or is considering an abortion that they are sad like that they're devastated about this or that they If they had more information, they would change their mind or or something like that. Right. And I think especially what I've heard a lot in talking with people about their abortion experiences is that sometimes this is really based on on age. And so we kind of have these ideas about, oh, if you're 17 and pregnant, oh, you're definitely going to have an abortion. And if you're 30 and married and pregnant, you're definitely going to continue with that pregnancy. And people make these decisions for a variety of complex and interconnected reasons. And we can't make assumptions about that. And the other thing that I just want to say is that People, a lot of these narratives we talk about sort of like, what are the risks or what if you regret your abortion, right? But really what the evidence shows is that although the vast majority of people don't regret their abortion, it's very possible to to feel regret about it. But really the issue is that it's the, the pregnancy, right? So the pregnancy is actually what is the source of a lot of these feelings and then people who decide to have an abortion might attribute that sadness or that regret to the abortion if that makes sense and then the other thing is that and people this is really not talked about but there are people out there who have children that regret having children or that if they could make that decision different maybe they would but it's also possible that our feelings about decisions that we make change over the course of our lives right so maybe this is a time where it's particularly sad but maybe 10 years from now i would feel later or a year from now i would feel later so Sorry, I would feel differently. So people can and do feel all sorts of ways about their abortions and there's no right or wrong way to feel. And I think that we do know that most people don't regret their abortion, that when people feel well informed, that they're able to make that decision autonomously without pressure from other people, that that also really contributes to people feeling confident in their decisions. And again, just remembering that two things can be true at the same time and with all kinds of complicated or big important life decisions, we can have different kinds of feelings about them at the same time.
0: That is so true, right? Even kind of like hooking up with people or having sex with someone that you loved or not having sex with someone that you loved many years ago. So they all can we can have different emotions and we can change our mind. Doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that if we're having sadness about an experience, it means like we made a wrong decisions exactly. about it. We get yeah. to have the emotions and experience it, but then kind of thinking about long term that was the best outcome. Again, I'm mm-hmm. I'm someone that I'm pro choice, but mm-hmm. I never Tell people to like this is you. This is what you have to do. You have to kind of terminate pregnancy mm-hmm. or not, because it's such a personal decision. But what's mm-hmm. interesting, I was reading some research, and perhaps maybe that was some of the research that you've done. That there are we all know there are people that are protesting outside places like Planned Parenthood and make the life of these women where they're making these decisions incredibly difficult. And research shows that it doesn't necessarily change women's mind, but it makes the experience even more painful. So tell us more about that.
1: Yeah. So especially with things like protesting outside of clinics, we actually don't, doesn't really change people's minds. It just really contributes to this idea of shame and stigma. And that is also something that really kind of reinforces negative feelings that people might have. Because if people don't feel like they can talk about their experience, or maybe it's something so shameful that they get, they feel like they have to keep it a secret, or they don't want to talk to other people about it, then that can have negative outcomes, right? It feels really hurtful and sad to maybe not feel like we can talk about something that important that is happening in our lives with the people that are around us. So yes, we don't, no one, I don't want anyone who doesn't want to have an abortion to have an abortion. I want people to be able to make informed and empowered decisions about their reproductive health and then be able to access the care that they need to do that. And similarly, we also know that waiting periods, so mandatory waiting periods for abortion don't really have an effect on how people doesn't change people's minds because people put a lot of thought and care into these decisions. And at the time that they've arrived at making that, they know what they want. That's not to say that some people don't appreciate that there's a waiting time. And definitely clinicians and and doctors should make sure that people feel confident in their decisions. But there is we don't have to sort of legislate it in this way. We don't have a mandatory waiting time put in place for other kinds of decisions that people have to make. And so this is really, those kinds of laws and legislation are really about making it harder to access care and about not trusting pregnant people to make the own, the best decisions for their lives or thinking that abortion decisions are careless or not well considered when in reality we know that that's not true.
0: I agree with you, and I think again, if someone that's in such a tough place, if we're making the decision even more difficult, we're just causing more psychological harm on them, and it kind of like make them makes it difficult for them to make better decisions in in future. If if mm-hmm. that's also mm-hmm. a part of it, and the other piece connected to it is, I haven't seen anyone being excited about getting an abortion. It's not something that's like people say, oh, wonderful. Let me let me yeah. get in the habit of getting an abortion. It's just so much pain and thought and frustration sometimes that gets to into this kind of making this decision. So I think that's also the part that people might not consider about when they're making these, these kind of interventions to prevent mm-hmm. people from having mm-hmm. these terminations. Tell us about the young men or men who are kind of being with someone that's, that now there's an unplanned pregnancy. What's their role? How can they support their partner?
1: Yeah. So I do just want to say that certainly not everyone who has an abortion feels necessarily sadness or devastation around that. And for some people, it can be like a a big decision, but it's not necessarily a, a challenging decision to make, although for other people it is. So again, there's just like such a spectrum that people can and do feel about this and all of that is is valid and all of it is kind of common in terms of how men can support their partners or people can support their pregnant partners i think that just actually asking them sort of there's not necessarily one best way sometimes people might want you they might want their partner to drive them to the clinic and to be there with them, or they might want them to stay home and to offer child care, right? Because many people who have abortions are already parents or already mothers. So I think that just kind of with any interpersonal interaction, the best thing is to just ask your partner and show that you support them. And, and maybe they want food or snacks, or maybe they want alone time, right? Like everyone just kind of deals with things in different ways. And I also think that it's okay to have conversations about these, especially in the context of if you're in a committed relationship and you have a pregnancy, an unplanned pregnancy or an unintended pregnancy that it's not something that you don't have to talk about just because maybe you're not the person who is pregnant. Ultimately, the decision comes down to the person who is pregnant. But in a lot of the people that I've spoken with, when they are in relationships with someone and they maybe a mistimed pregnancy, they still want to be with their partner, they have a positive relationship, they still want to be able to have a conversation about that, even if they're the one that's making the decision. So
0: i agree with you and i think sometimes because for some people it it is a big decision an overwhelming decision i feel the partners sometimes they're not talking about it enough for example i had kind of like few married couples in long-term relationship that already had a child so to them it wasn't as a big deal but the partner the female partner felt kind of invalidated about Mm -hmm. that okay we know Mm -hmm. we don't have a child we don't want another child and we're gonna get an abortion. And that was her decision. But again, it's important to be able to, as you said, like any other decisions in a relationship, to have communication, kind of like validate your partner's emotions and be having their own back. You're right, having their own back would be different, it would be giving them a ride right or letting them to heal, or kind of like supporting them however they're asking for. And I can imagine even for the in a heterosexual relationship, for male partner also could be a grieving process, whether it's like yeah. a whatever decision they're making as a couple?
1: Yeah, definitely different, like people can't male partners can and do also have feelings about abortion. And I definitely understand that. So again, bo- both people just kind of having a conversation and making an effort to see and understand your partner's feelings and perspectives is, is important.
0: I know that there are people that are curious about your work, they want to learn about the research that you're doing. So how can people get a hold of you?
1: So I don't have professional social media, unfortunately. So I am currently teaching and working at Purdue. So I have a Purdue email address. If anyone wants to email me, you can just Google Kathleen Larash Purdue, and then I'll come up and you can email me. I'm really excited right now. I So I, I mentioned this text line in Missouri that I'm involved with right by you they're an incredible organization so one of the projects right now that i'm doing is sort of an evaluation of that text line and the services that they provide for young people and people all across missouri so we can look at maybe is this a model that we want to extend to other states or make available especially because we've had this massive shift in legislation across the u.s and so we see that really localized community-based kinds of support are becoming increasingly important and playing such a big role in people's ability to be able to find care and access care. And then in January, pending IRB approval, we're in the process of getting that. I'm really excited to be launching a project that's going to be looking at people's miscarriage experiences in Indiana and looking at how anti-abortion legislation or legislation that aims to restrict or eliminate access to abortion if that has an effect on people's ability or willingness to seek or access miscarriage care. Because even though we talk about abortion and miscarriage a lot of the time as really distinct healthcare issues, they're they're very related because they use the same kinds of medications and they use the same kinds of procedures. And so When we actually kind of get down into it it's not always clear whether something is an abortion or is a miscarriage depending on how that's classified or or organized or things like that so we definitely have a fear that abortion that sorry legislation that limits access to abortion could also limit access to life-saving and essential miscarriage care. But it's really important to sort of look at that and document that and really include patients' own perspectives and experiences in that in that research.
0: Well thank you for all this wonderful work that you're doing and keep us posted and the result, result of the research. So hopefully that that gives us lots of clear data. Thank you so much for your time and it was my pleasure to have you on our show.
1: Thank you so much. I can't thank you enough for speaking with me today. Bye there.
0: I hope you guys found our conversation meaningful. It's mind blowing to me that how much research should we do when we want to get a new computer or a refrigerator or iPhone or iPad but we don't do even a half of that research when it comes to choosing and finding a contraception for us that that works well for us i know majority of women that i know that they perhaps take one kind of contraceptive pills and if it's not working for them and they just decide to just go with condom, if that. So if you know a woman that would be interested and benefit from this episode, please send it to them. We are at the time and unfortunately, period of history that these information are not easily accessible for all. At the end, I want to thank you guys for listening to this podcast. And if you haven't checked out our sponsor, omgs.com, make sure that you check out their platform. This is a website that I recommend to. All of my clients, regardless of how sexually seasoned they are, one of the comments I get a lot from my clients is that they feel that their sex life became routine and they feel that they, they would benefit from learning different ways and strategies to relate differently with their body, have different experiences in the bedroom. And in this omgs.com, they created this incredible resource that will teach you all different ways that you can explore. Your body with yourself and with your partner. And it's very easy to follow, but detailed as far as what kind of touches that you can use, what kind of pressure you have to apply. So make sure you are checking out their website. The website is omgs.com/slash sexology. And if you're heading there, you're gonna get a special discount and also you you're doing me a favor of it, supporting our sponsors and if you are a therapist psychologist doctor they offer free personal access to you because it is just so good that they know if you try it you will share it with your own audience all right thank you so much for being part of this show i cannot wait until next week same time same place bye for now thanks for listening to sexology podcast